on episode 10 of the InsureTech Geek Podcast, talking about cyber risk management with Stephen Schwartz from Cytegic. The InsureTech Geek Podcast, powered by JB Knowledge, is all about technology that's transforming and disrupting the insurance world. We'll be interviewing guests and doing deep dives with our own research and development team in the technology that we see changing the industry. We're taking you on a journey through insurance tech, so enjoy the ride and geek out. Right. Good day, everybody. Hope you're doing well. Hope you keep geeking out since the last time I talked to you. Just been a great time here on the InsureTech Geek Podcast. Had some great conversations with really incredible people. And this week is no exception. We're talking to the Vice President of Strategy and Insurance Practice at Cytegic, Mr. Stephen Schwartz. And having a great time talking about cyber. Of course, it's always intimidating when you talk about cyber because there's so many unknowns and and no one feels like maybe very few people feel like they really understand all the different pieces, parts and components of cyber. It can be a very confusing space, a very uh, risk laden space of the uh, risk management space. And so we're going to talk about cyber and what Cytegic and uh, Stephen are doing to try and help make sense of it for everybody on this week's episode of the InsureTech Geek podcast. And again, I'm James Benham, your InsureTech Geek. Here's the interview. And I'm here today with Stephen Schwartz, VP of Strategy and Insurance at Cytegic. Stephen, thank you for joining us today. I believe you're in New York City today. Correct, correct. Thank you. Uh, thank you for having me. How's the weather up there? Is it getting cold? It's not too bad today. It is, it's definitely not warm. Um, it is starting to, to get cold for sure, but it's well, we'll have the occasional day where it's, you know, 65 and then the next day it's snowing and, you know, feels like it's about four degrees outside. So, yeah, um, we're not doing too bad today, though. Had, had a little snow yesterday. Yeah. Uh, well, on, well the for, rebound, on, on the rebound for a guy from northern New Jersey who went to college in upstate New York, today is a good day. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Very well said. Very well said. Albany can be a little dismal sometimes. Oh, my goodness. Anything around the Great Lakes and that far north, man, it gets cold uh-huh. up there. I mean, it's yes. uh, it's it's brutal. Brutal. I end up going to, you know, I speak at a lot of conferences. I end up going to Canada at least a couple of times a winter. And I always question my sanity because it just is, I mean, Toronto, Toronto, Montreal, uh, Uh Quebec City. I remember one time I went to Ottawa in the middle of the winter and I got out of the uh, airport and they said, okay, you need to only breathe through. I I think it was like breathe in through your mouth and not your nose because it'll (laughs) it'll freeze in your nose. And it was like negative 25. I think it was literally negative 25. Uh. And, and, uh, and I was like, okay, you mean like, like my body, like I'm going to freeze. Like, yeah, parts freeze. Like, just be careful. I'm like, uh, can we go inside? This, this, <laughs> this is where I parked my car. <laughs> exactly. Who are you and why am I here? So, uh, so Steven, I love talking about insurance and insurance tech. And uh, I'm really excited to talk about what's, what you do and what you, what you do at Cytegic. But before we get into that, let's just talk about you for a second. You're from northern New Jersey. You went 
and got an undergrad and master's up in upstate New York at uh, Siena and then Union. What through that path, you know, growing up, like what? And you were you were a hockey player in college, and you, you had to enjoy playing some hockey. And and uh, I mean, that's a, what a great physical sport, right? Oh yeah, oh yeah. It's um, I I wish I were still in hockey shape. I'm uh, uh, almost almost scared to to see if uh, to see how I am doing these days, but um. Yeah, it really, really great sport. Um, just you know, very, very quick, very much team oriented. Um, and do you have all just, your teeth? I do, I do. You know what? Uh, every everybody always asks that, and until you get sort of past the college level, um, we have to play with a face mask. Granted, um, I don't know if I really would want to play without a face mask. Um, if it's worth uh, taking a puck to the face, <laughs> not now in, in a men's league. Um, but, uh, we, yeah, always had a cage growing up. So still, still have my teeth. Um, <laughs> nice. that said, I keep eating too many Sour Patch Kids, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and my teeth might, might go out another way. Some habits die hard, Steven. Some habits die hard. Exactly. So, so what did you dream of doing growing up? And then, uh, through your undergrad and your MBA, um, what, what ended up happening and how'd you end up in insurance? <laughs> you mean you didn't dream of? You know, grow up dreaming to want to be an insurance. <laughs> I, you know, it's funny. Seven because years old, I knew. Exactly. There are there are those careers, though, Stephen, that people yeah. that children see and say, "I want to go do that." Uh, police officer, firefighter, uh, you know, soldier. You know, even people that want to go and build buildings and be in construction, and there there are definitely people that want to be artists and singers and songwriters. I mean, there there's a whole slew of careers that people as children dream of doing. And this is just not one of them, right? I mean, it's no. just its just not. And it doesn't mean it's not a wonderful, awesome career. It's just not something you think of doing as a child. So right. if anything, if you had that focus uh, or you had that dream when you were a kid, what was it? And then what, what led you into insurance? And what happened? Yeah, I, I'll say I am I'm a bit worried about the seven-year-old that does want to be an insurance. Um, so yeah, I guess growing up at one point, I wanted to be an architect, which I still do love architecture, but, uh, really somewhere along that continuum, definitely wanted to be a hockey player until about high school when I realized I wasn't, wasn't going to quite go all all the way there. That changed. How, how did I get lured into the world of insurance? Well, the first job that I had was at this company, Treo Solution, which was a unique unique opportunity and didn't necessarily appreciate it at the time, but uh, it was a healthcare data analytics startup doing the claims analytics for the likes of Aetna and various Blue Cross plans. And the head of the school of business or management at my, uh, at my college, I was fairly close with and the rule by my family in order to, to stay up at my, my apartment over the summer, I had to get a job or an internship. So I, I reached out to her and emailed her and, um, she uh, probably, I think, responded within a matter of three minutes. Wow. She was just on, on her laptop. Just, yeah, I distinctly remember that. And was like, hey, yeah, I actually know the CEO of this, uh, you know, this buzzing startup. And you have a meeting next week or an interview next week. Turned out the CEO was her husband. So uh, so she you know, definitely was, knew him. <laughs> yeah, definitely knew him. And was, was grateful for for the introduction and was a truly great experience. I mean, I... I 
I stayed there through grad school and ultimately the firm had a, uh, I was employee number 20 my, my junior year and the firm had a nine figure exit after five years for the 180 employees. So really got to be part of it and really see how that, that tech driven culture, if you will, culture of openness and that sort of drives the right degree of alignment and autonomy really, really impacts an organization in, in a positive way. And just how, how rapidly this company grew and without taking a cent of outside capital. So it was a pretty great experience. And then then from there, I had a very, what really sucked me into the, the world of insurance, uh, which was an interesting opportunity, was with this firm UIC, United Insurance Consultants. And UIC is, if not the, it's, it's one of the world's largest independent insurance consulting firms. So our clients were predominantly Fortune 2000 entities or companies paying at least a million dollars a year in their annual P&C premiums. And they would retain us on an annual independent basis. So completely free of any commissions or financial incentives from the insurance industry. And they would retain us to manage and negotiate their insurance and risk management programs. So in that capacity, we were, uh, we were managing roughly $2 billion in annual premium across 40, 40 countries. And as you can imagine, we did not get many Christmas cards from the brokerage community. Probably um, not. Probably we, not. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, as we would we would come in, we would exploit their current coverage deficiencies, manuscript policy language across each line of business, get into the actuarial loss triangulation, and then drive a competitive negotiation process, leveraging several brokers and insurers to compete for the business at renewal. So as a result, drove significant coverage enhancements and uh, while reducing premiums dra- you know, drastically and for the most part outweighed the fees that were being paid to us, right? Because people, and where it ties to InsureTech, and as I sort of you know, progressed on from there, right, the, the industry is one inherent conflict of interest, right? The broker wears three hats representing themselves, the client, and the insurance company. Now, I don't believe the broker is going away. Um, you know, at some point, everybody needs their, their hand held. Uh, but certainly what's interesting and, and prevailing in the market right now is, uh, is the conversation, conversation about how do, we, how do we enable, right, the uh, sort of the shift in that mindset from being a purely transactional player to taking more of a strategic advisory role, right? And how can the industry do that? Well, Stephen, the broker dilemma is the same as the realtor dilemma. When you have a buy side realtor working for you, they are not incentivized to help you drive the exactly. purchase price of the house down. It's the most insane mm-hmm. thing I've ever, and it and it drives me crazy. I love the real estate market and play pretty heavily in it, and it drives me nuts. And it's why I handle my own negotiations and I bring a broker in as a necessity, simply because it's required as most of these as part of most of these transactions. But the real estate broker, right? That's that's what I right and. Um, and, and so it, it drives me nuts there. And in insurance, you know, you're seeing a lot of brokers respond to the huge, at least in my opinion, huge uptick in insurance consultants who are doing exactly what you're talking about by moving to fixed fee arrangements and changing the nature of the services they provide. So the broker, there's a lot of people in the broker community that are responding to this change in customer sentiment by changing their business model. But they as well, in a traditional commission broker relationship, are not aligned with the incentives of their clients. Because if they help their clients save yeah. premium and reduce premium, then they actually reduce their own fees. 
Well, right. And that's a problem, right? Exactly. Exactly. Some of the points we we used to talk about with with a prospect even is on that conflict of interest, it's not to say, right, definitively, oh, yes, you know, but if if you were being paid a commission, right, would you necessarily want the client to go with the $100,000 option or the $80,000 option? Right now, we, we can't answer that question. It's it's a subjective question, right? But definitely something to think about. And further, right, especially if it's a regional broker, and it's and it's not a bash on the brokerage, you know, on brokers. It's it's just a function of of the industry and how we've operated for no. You know, this is of a years. this is a byproduct of the business model. This is not about the. Yeah. It doesn't mean these people don't have integrity and they're not good professionals. They don't operate in the best interest of their clients. It just means that their compensation is not aligned with right. their with, it's not with, aligned. It's not aligned with their client's best success. That's it doesn't mean that they don't do their best job. Because I have a lot of friends who are brokers who just really do a phenomenal job. Yeah. You know, certainly as a as a buyer of insurance, I have I have over two hundred employees. I buy a lot of insurance. As a buyer, I've had to change brokers a couple times because I had some brokers that really didn't want to work for their commission and, and really were demonstrating that they weren't aligned with my interest. Uh, and then I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I moved to ones who were right. So I mean, it just like any industry, right? There, there's a lot of industries where the buyer, the buyer's agent gets a commission. And right, I, right. I, I, as a general rule of thumb, I believe in the buyer's agent in any type of business transaction being a fixed fee buyer's agent, because that mm-hmm. that way their success is really aligned with the clients in that they, uh, you know, they want more work from that client in the future. They're going to get paid the same whether they save money or not. So they're going to work hard to save money for their client. Right. So anyway, I, that, it seems like a little sidetrack. I'm sorry if I took us down that tangent, but uh, it's 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 an interesting uh, point of contention in the insurance business. Yeah, and it's you know people at the end of the day people always forget why we have insurance, right? And and also the fact that without insurance the world stops, right? We're not in any of the buildings that we're in right now without insurance. We're not in, you know engaging and working with one another, constructing any of these any of the buildings. You know, it's insurance is sort of that one industry that that truly touches all all others i just find it very unique right and uh none of us learn about insurance in college um and and sort of is is that necessary evil but right now it's it's actually a very exciting time within within the world of insurance i i think so and, and, I'm, and i'm sure you guys do on on, on the other side you know why i think it's exciting Stephen, is that insurance companies are really transforming their clients now. They're saying, hey, let us help you reduce your cost of risk and let's help you reduce your operational losses. And so you, you, mm-hmm. you because the insurance company is so, the carrier who carries the risk is so heavily incentivized <laughs> to have a financially healthy, stable company that has low losses, they by proxy become the ultimate advisor and consultant an enabler of new technology because it benefits them so much in their loss ratio. Oh, absolutely. It's really amazing. Yeah. A lot of the work that we we do within the industry is is to drive that particular engagement, right, on the advisory side to try to A, understand more about our customers, but actually help them, you know, mitigate the risk as it is, to your point, benef- beneficial for for our balance sheets, our, our capital solvency ratios. And at the end of the day, too, there's so there's so many clients who who are looking for that advice, right? And they don't they don't know where to, to turn necessarily, you know, especially in the, the world of cyber, you know, and cyber security, cyber risk management. Um, they don't they don't know where to go. 
um, and they're looking for advice, willing to pay for it. And the opportunity for the insurance industry to, to really be that pillar or, you know, or that body that, that their clients look to for, for advice and, and, and where to go, how to, how to move forward in this complex sort of operating environment is really a, a huge opportunity that um, beyond, I think, balancing their you know, ma- managing their balance sheet in terms of the the revenue opportunity for for them is 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 also quite 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 large. So, talk with me about the founding of Cytegic. You joined this year. Uh, who founded it and why? And what is it doing today? Absolutely. So, the company was founded in in 2012. Uh, the founder's name and CEO is Alan Kaplan, and really was founded and trying to solve the the very highly highly challenging task of of quantifying cyber risk, right? Putting a dollar sign next to what what cyber risk means, you know, whether it's at the you know individual entity level, the business unit within an enterprise, or you know within within the world of insurance at at the portfolio level, right? And it's um, it's something that cyber risk quantification is something that uh, I'm sure you'll see over the next year uh, increasingly become a a key and core pillar within, you know, cyber risk management. But there's, uh, because of really the complexities and in, you know, quantifying it, there, there's been limited, limited ad- advancements, if you will, in the industry. You know, both in insurance and within, you know, the more traditional enterprise industries. And uh, Cytegic has has really revolutionized. Uh, the, the world of cyber risk quantification and has taken four four U.S. patents and uh, about 25 plus man years of, of R&D to, uh, to bring a process down that traditionally took four weeks to a matter of hours or or minutes, depending on, on the size and degree of granularity. How? Tell us how it works. So when I say we're quantifying cyber risk, if we take a step back for a second, Right. It's uh, there's there's a lot of solutions out there that will tell you, um, you know, my cyber risk is a two point five out of five or a three out of five. But I have no idea what that means to my business. Right. I don't sort of what's what's a score without context. Right. You know, but if if you tell me I'm a three out of five and next to it, right, that my business is facing a potential you know, financial loss or impact of you know, one point five million dollars. Now I understand, you know, what it does mean in my business and, and sort of helps to bridge that communication gap between those at the technical level and, you know, executives at the board level and, and making, you know, business decisions. To really be able to bring that process down to something that's done in real time and, you know, is, is scalable, to whether you're, you're the two-person coffee shop or a multinational bank, there's several components that, that we really need to analyze. So one of which, right, and one we, when we just think about how we define cyber risk and how we, how we quantify it, right, we need to identify all of the assets uh, within, our, within a business, right? So, and when we think of digital and intangible assets, right, intellectual property, uh, your availability to customers and vendors, a lot of assets that people wouldn't tradition are traditionally think about, right? Your employee database. And, and then how do we assign a value, right? To what's, what's the value of my employee database? You know, a lot, a lot of people wouldn't know where to really begin in that process. And then, and then we have a set of controls, right? Protecting each, each and every, every one of those assets. And, and those controls are fighting off 
a, a set of adversaries, a variety of different threat attackers who are using a variety of different threat methods to, to try to you know, achieve a specific objective. And, and that's to compromise your, your confidentiality, your integrity, or, or your availability of, of your data. To really bring that process down, we have to analyze the global threat landscape, right? Who are those bad actors and, and what are they doing? And, and do that in real time. And, and moreover, unfortunately, those bad actors don't all speak English with a Brooklyn accent like, like in Men in Black. Um, but, you know, are often speaking other languages like Russian, Korean, Chinese. So out of the box, right, we're analyzing that global threat landscape in 11 different languages, uh, inclusive of Russian, Chinese, Farsic, Arabic, Korean, European languages, you name it, pulling out what's relevant for that particular organization, right? Because you have a fundamentally different set of attackers with different motives for that multinational bank versus that two-person coffee shop. So that's really on, on the right hand, right? If we, if we think of two hands to clap here. So, you know, analyzing the global threat landscape in 11 different languages, um, looking forward in some capacity. Does that mean like you're going on to tour or you're going on to like, and you're actually crawling sites and looking for people talking about attacks on, on these entities? Yeah, exactly. So we are scrubbing, you know, analyzing thousands of open source databases, the illustrious dark web. And, Wait, and hold, hold on, hold on, hold on. Steven, we got we to gotta explain the dark web to people because people say dark web and they don't really have a clue uh, what it is. So this is, let's call it an alternative internet that's largely numerical. Instead of typing in a URL, you type in an IP address and an obscure port and you use a specific type of browser, right? So this is... Uh, Yep, it, it operates over the same lines as the internet, but on different different. We, we call it in technol technical a port, right? So uh, HTTP is over port eighty. Secure is over usually port four forty three. Dark web operates on a completely different port. So uh, it's IP addresses with port names. So you have to know what you're targeting, and you typically use a, a different type of uh, of web browser to access uh, dark websites. So you're actually crawling these sites looking for mentions and discussion around uh, attacks. Exactly. So we have an anthology of roughly 30,000 phrases that we're ultimately scrubbing and, and analyzing the open source web and, and, and beyond for and, and also ingesting some data from different vendor partners like Biocatch, who has a lot of great fraud and identity data. And what we're doing is we're identifying patterns and quantifying the intensity of each permutation, right? You know, a specific kind of attacker, financial hacker, a political activist, a nation state, you know, that's using a specific attack method. So whether it's malware, ransomware, um, you know, email and social engineering, right? And, and really quantifying that intensity of what's going on in the world today and against specific geographies, business segments, business sizes, to really identify that relevant threat landscape, you know, once we have uh, an organization's profile. Yeah. And it's, man, what a different world we live in from cybersecurity than 20 years ago. It's crazy. These are now multi-billion dollar organizations that are defrauding millions of individuals. 10% of our construction client base, we have pretty heavy operations in construction, 10%, a full 10%. Suffered a, a cybersecurity attack last year 
or in the in the last 12 months that had a material impact on their operations a full 10%. Back when I was a teenager, hackers and authors of viruses and trojans, trojan horses that would get installed in networks were largely doing it just to get notoriety, fame or to mess with people. They're bored. Mm-hmm. Now they have a very distinct profit motivation. These are large uh, in, in institutions and what's disturbing outside the United States because you know, inside the United States as a corporation, you have no expectation that the federal government is either going to help you defend against cyber attacks because they don't. They have a, a web reporting form to, 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 to announce that it happened <laughs> to you. I mean, it's pathetic. It's pathetic yeah, what yeah. the FBI does to help private, private companies because uh, I've, I've had my clients try to go through the process and just got nowhere, uh, largely because it's just too many uh, instances are, are happening all the time and they're undermanned on, on resources. Uh, but n- you know, we don't have an expectation that our government in the United States is going to help us defend, much less launch attacks against our competitors. But that is not the case in foreign countries. There are many foreign entities where a company in that country would actually have the government's assistance to have nation-state involvement in corporate cyber theft and cyber attack schemes. Because they're taking a cut of the action. Like this is mm-hmm. this is the stuff out of sci-fi movies. Seriously, it's wild. It is wild. You know, when you see an exact example, right? A, a Chinese telco with backing from the nation state, right? That is just sitting on a, a corporate network of a British telecom companies, you know, and is analyzing their log files, right? To to really identify. Right. What were the what were the what were those uh, you know the root causes of those different problem areas for this specific project that this telco is working on this telco company is working on so that we can develop you know our our product with without those anomalies without those blemishes and it's crazy how many how much resources is behind this right that the gap you know I think the statistics saying 2021 it's going to cost us six trillion dollars in cybercrime. Right, the cybercrime industry—that's bigger than the global drug industry, right? For six trillion dollars, yet uh, our, our global cybersecurity spending is going to be around 120, 125 billion dollars. That's a huge economic and capability gap, right, between the attack landscape and where we're going to be with respect to protecting our our businesses ourselves, right, against. Uh, against uh, sort of this uh, exponentially growing cyber cyber threat landscape. Yeah, it's really quite incredible. And, and the, uh, the level of confusion on what people are supposed to do in the area of insurance around cyber is just uh, unfortunately getting worse, not better, because the, the threat landscape keeps expanding, right? Um, the, number of threats, exactly. the, the number of threats, the frequency of threats, and then the number of tools. Uh, these poor CISOs, basically, if you're a chief, you know, a CISO, right? Chief Information Security Officer, mm-hmm. uh, for those who are the un- that don't know what CISO stands for. Basically, if you have a breach, you're fired. <laughs> Like it's, 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 yeah, they're in the hot seat right now. Yeah. And you, you feel bad for them, but at the same time, they know the game when they step into it. If you're a CISO and you have a breach, you're probably going to have to tend to your resignation because the board's probably going to demand it. Mm-hmm. This, this is a challenging time. It's a challenging job. So I imagine you end up working with uh, quite a few CISOs. Yeah. So quite a few CISOs and a lot of the work we're doing right now too is, is really within the insurance industry and working with some of the leading cyber insurers, right? So cyber insurance is the fastest growing 
line of business within within the insurance market. You know, I think last year globally was you know four and a half billion in premium. By 2020, seven and a half billion in premium projected, and you know upwards of 20 billion by 2022, 2024-ish. So rapidly growing, and it's a really interesting landscape because it's it's sort of been this arms race for market share at least in the US. So you have a lot of carriers who have been pushing out more and more coverage and at cheaper and cheaper premiums, collecting less and less data from from their insurance, right? So carriers who will underwrite a given risk on four data points, on the size of the company, their revenue, how many records they have, and if they've had a breach in the last five years, um, which is really, really limited when you're trying to understand, you know, a company A and manage the most dynamic, you know, interconnected risk in the world. You know, all risk is sort of cyber risk these, these days and, and tied tied to some some cyber or digital dimension. So it's uh, a lot of the work that we're doing right now is working with uh, carriers and reinsurers as really the operating system for for their underwriters and their exposure analysts, displacing their traditional paper-based applications. That is, you know, three to four pages, and as a checkbox, yes or no. Do you let, you know, do you have a firewall and a variety of other questions? Except none of none of that information is validated, right? We don't have, we haven't had a validation mechanism to, to actually understand if what somebody's told us on this application is actually true. Right. It's it's one thing to ask, how much do you like your firewall? It's another to know, is it configured properly? So a glaring issue within within the industry and and beyond that, right, there's a huge lack of standardization, both in the underwriting requirements and in the coverage forms. So when underwriters get, you know, these applications in, whether it's their own or from another carrier that they're just quoting on on this uh, opportunity, there's a a huge manual and tedious process that's involved to analyze that application, you know, do your own write-up and transcribe it and with some data entry into some standardized form that that underwriting team is using or whatnot, and then do some peripheral analysis. So it is really a, a, a long, tedious process for the carriers, and they are not getting uh, the transparency and clarity that they need in, into the risk that uh, ultimately, to to support the capacity that's required, right? To, to ultimately get the the reinsurance capacity and you know insurance linked securities to the capital markets, we we need transparency. And uh, the industry is, has really been lacking in terms of getting that. But starting to starting to really wake up, in, in my opinion, as the market is starting to harden. And starting to demand more of their insureds in terms of uh, in terms of that data entry, right? So providing a tool that can sort of displace the traditional paper-based application and add value to the insured, right? Telling them how much, uh, you know, what is the real risk that the, that they're facing, right? In terms of dollars, and and within that, right? If we automate a prioritized remediation plan, right? So we're ultimately translating everything back to 51 security controls. And if we're able to identify based on the results of the application or the input of that client's application, right? And whether it's 12 questions for the SMB, 
30 questions for the mid-market company or 500 questions as EY uses our platform to do a deep enterprise assessment, if we're able to identify from that, uh, what are those top three controls that that client should invest in and prioritize in to reduce their risk, um, right? We start to drive a, a fundamentally different insurance conversation, right? And, and it becomes a conversation around how, how do we optimize our spend right between risk management and risk transfer and uh right if we if i have a cyber risk you know on a three out of five and a financial impact of a million dollars but if i were to invest in employee awareness and training security policies and patch management it's going to reduce my risk and my financial impact from a million to five hundred thousand you know maybe i want to invest a few dollars in those controls and then transfer my risk and, and procure cyber insurance at, at a reduced rate and, and have some clarity as to, as to the decisions that, that I'm making as, as an organization. Yeah, that's huge. Absolutely huge. And, and, and brings, brings clarity to a very muddy situation, right? The challenge too in cyber is just the pace at which the entire market is shifting because as countermeasures are deployed, the, those who are attacking and trying to get information are getting far more sophisticated. And so it's, Definitively an arm, arms race that does not look like it's going to slow down anytime soon. looks like it's going to actually accelerate. And so tools like this are, are, are critical uh, for risk. So what are you excited about? What's next? Like, What's the future look like for insurance tech and for Cytegic? Uh, yeah, no, it's, it's a very interesting question. And to take a step back for a second, you know, before I was at Cytegic, for, for the year prior, I was at this firm, uh, CEO Quest, and had the opportunity of uh, working with a variety of insurance, you know, insure tech VCs, venture funds, or the uh, CVCs of different insurance companies and uh, work with them really in, in advising their portfolio member CEOs in, in sort of accelerating their, their company growth as they're trying to traverse across the, the insurance value chain. And uh, it was very, very interesting experience, and and still, to, you know, to date, I'm pretty, pretty immersed broadly in the world of insure tech outside of sort of the cyber focus. In my opinion, I, I think you know every industry has the word tech after it now. Insure tech, the the best one I saw recently was data tech, which um, I thought was a, a little, a little much. That, that that that's a little repetitive, don't you think? I mean, yeah, like data, data. Like, yeah. <laughs> uh, aren't, aren't we pushing it, pushing it a bit here, guys? Um, but there's no limit to the mind of a marketer. Don't ever forget that. <laughs> no, there, there really isn't. Um, and it's, you know, I, I think insure tech as an industry is starting to mature, which, which is good. Um, you know, at, when it really, when it started, you know, three, three, four years ago. I, I would say we were seeing a lot of a lot of micro solutions that weren't weren't addressing macro problems. I think we were getting a lot of brilliant engineers who you know were creating pro, you know uh, products I could never dream of, but who didn't understand the insurance industry, right? And it it's one of the most complex industries in the world, um, but behind the scenes, so. Without an understanding of, of the nuances and especially the cultural nuances of the industry, you know, trying to sell technology within it is is not uh, an easy easy ball game, and often question why why I do it. 
I think we're starting to see InsureTech as, as a whole mature, you know, in, in those solutions and a lot of the noise weed out, if, if you will. Curious as to what your thoughts or perspective on, on that or on the InsureTech market is, in, in, in your opinion. Sure, yeah. The funding market for it certainly has beefed up, right? And you have major venture and growth equity funds that are fueled by the insurance companies themselves because they're, they've recognized the threat to disruption. And so they're starting to fund companies that they think might disrupt their own business. So that they have a part mm-hmm. of the, so they're they're a participant in the disruption rather than a recipient of it. I've certainly seen that. I, the The most interesting trend I've seen, I think, is the advent of the tech company that decides to just be an insurance company. Mm-hmm. I think that's probably like the pinnacle of tech is when you say, you know what, I'm not going to sell to this industry. I'm going to compete in this industry, and that's probably been the most interesting shift that I've seen as of recent is uh, a pretty big uptick in the number of companies that have decided just to compete in the insurance business and go hire experienced insurance folks and raise money and carry risk. Yeah, look, if you've got the data, whether it's Amazon one day who's, you know, going to sell insurance embedded with their products, you know, and and it's a beautiful distribution at at the same time too. It's right, insurance is not a topic anybody ever really wants to talk about. So <laughs> If you could sell it at the point of sale, you know, embedded in whatever other process is is going on, it creates a unique opportunity and and brand new risk capital, right? And and even something that we're seeing in in the cyber domain, this notion of, of business or ecosystem resilience, as as we all do operate, you know, in in ecosystems now, right? Interconnected to our vendors, our clients, suppliers, and and have this, you know, network of vendors that spider webs into you know the vendors of their vendors so on and, and so forth and when we look at the process right now uh if you want to work with a major enterprise and certainly you know handles handle some some data you have to go through right a, a lengthy security due diligence questionnaire which is a blast as oh as you yeah know. <laughs> exciting i love them i do i do them for my own company right everybody loves that you know thousand row Excel questionnaire. And on the other side, you know, you know, managed completely separate from this in, in our contract, you know, is a requirement for cyber insurance or something at some arbitrary number, right? So if we can reduce that, the friction of that entire process into much smoother engagement and, you know, like our platform that's used for insurance is also used for major enterprises in managing their third-party vendors, and in that process and, and tied, you know, bringing it back to, to where, what we were just talking about, embedding the sale of cyber insurance within that process, right, for companies, how companies and vendors engage uh, their major enterprises is, A, such a unique opportunity for uh, those enterprises to be involved in that and, and to actually manage that inherent risk from working with that ecosystem, right, to push it down sort of onto them, while as the vendor, Right, going through a much simpler, smoother process that that actually creates value. Right, um, I'm going to understand more about my risk, have an immediate option to procure the insurance that my contract is mandating me to, and know that it's you know adequately aligned with my actual exposure. When we just bring that back to sort of the notion of the embedded sale, right, of the tech company or enterprise taking on and or putting out that risk capital 
that they otherwise were partnering with or trying to sell through, uh, you know, the incumbent insurers is is really a, a unique opportunity. And, and whether it's brand new, you know, fresh risk capital or or partnered with uh, with some capital from the alternative markets in, in some capacity is definitely a fun conversation and, and excited to see where where it takes us next. Absolutely. That's great. Well, look, uh, I appreciate your points here and thank you for taking the time to talk with us today on the InsureTech Geek podcast. Uh, how do people find out more information about you and your company? Yeah, absolutely. Hey, thank you for having me. This is a lot of fun. So you can visit us online at, at sitegic.com. It's C-Y-T-E-G-I-C.com. And or add myself or, or the company on, on LinkedIn. Name is Stephen Schwartz again, and we'll see a lot of the the events that we're participating in uh, this week, where we have the pleasure to to speak at and join at the the EY Insurance Executive Forum. So really, really great event, uh, high high quality attendees and and participants. So pretty excited to uh, to join down in uh, in New York for that. Sounds great. Well, look, appreciate it. Thanks for your time. Uh, thanks for being on the show, and we'll uh, we'll speak with you soon. Thanks, guys. Re- really appreciate it, and uh, and likewise, look forward to uh, talking soon. The Insured Tech Geek Podcast, powered by JB Knowledge. That's jbknowledge.com. is all about technology. It's transforming and disrupting the insurance world. I've been your host and Insured Tech Geek, James Benham. That's jamesbenham.com. Thanks for joining us this week. I look forward to talking with you soon. Remember, we're taking you on a journey through insurance tech. So enjoy the ride and geek out. Talk to you next time.